Welcome to my podcast, Everyday Sublime, shedding light on yin yoga and meditation. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm a yin yoga teacher and trainer, as well as a licensed acupuncturist. This podcast is intended to be an in-depth exploration of the intersections between yin yoga, Chinese medicine, and meditation. And each episode will shed light on one or several of these themes. This episode is part three of four of an interview series with yin master Bernie Clark. Here, Bernie and I discuss the science of yin yoga. We look at the theory of anti-fragility and how that impacts how we think about practicing. We look at common confusions between correlation and causation in the yoga world. And Bernie talks about the four levels of evidence in scientific process. And we also look at the phenomenon of piezoelectricity, that's electricity generated by pressure, as well as discussing how yin and yang stresses influence our tissues differently. So without further ado, I bring you, once again, Bernie Clark. Connected to this all, and, and this is something that um, I, I think is, is important for a lot of yoga teachers to hear, not just yin yoga teachers, but if a teacher gives cues and instructs alignment in such a way that tissues don't receive stress, the result of that is that they're promoting and, and, and aiding and abetting the tissue in that particular person to become more fragile, right? Yeah, they're building fragility. And you no, know, the intentions are good. The best intentions in the world, almost every yoga teacher I've ever met had their students' best interests at heart. But they unconsciously default to this binary view of the world that because too much stress in the knee or whatever is bad, let's make sure we never do it. So never hyperextend. Well, you can't go all that other way. You need to stress these tissues. Or you're just going to make the tissues, as you say, fragile. Now, we, there's a section in my book on anti-fragility. The opposite of fragility is not robust. You can think of, I use the analogy of teacups. You know, a porcelain teacup would shatter if you dropped it on the ground. But a, a beer mug that's made out of pewter or tin, you drop it on the ground, it's robust, it doesn't break. We kind of think of that's the opposite of fragility, something that'll never break. But that's only one part of the spectrum. Beyond that is something called anti-fragility, things that actually gain through stress. We're not machines. Machines wear out and they don't repair themselves. But we need stress in order to make the body stronger and healthier. And if you don't allow that stress, like if you always wear arches in your shoes, the bones and ligaments in your feet are going to weaker and weaker. So that the point will come, you better always wear arches in your feet because the feet won't be able to take the stress. Some yoga teachers inadvertently make their students fragile by not allowing them to stress their tissues. That, that you just have to educate the teachers that's not binary. Everybody needs some sort of stress. And yes, you can do too much. I'm not saying do too much. But when you get close to too much, the body will tell you. It'll give you some warning signals called pain. So we have to teach the student to be aware of these things. A lot of students don't know what pain is. I'm sure you've had it, Josh, where you go up to somebody and maybe they're in Chaturanga 
and you'll ask the guy, how are you doing? I'm fine. This is great. Like crazy. I'm really going to feel this tomorrow. Well, that person doesn't know what pain is. They should be backing off. So you have to teach them. Anything that's sharp, burning, tingly, electrical, stabbing, shooting, zingers, these are not good. Don't stay there. Yeah. You know, connected to this and in some ways dovetailing back to the, the, the conversation around hypermobility, sometimes I see these things more online, whether it's in social media or in the blogosphere and the comment sec thread sections. Um, but you'll see someone say something along the lines of, um, you know, a student's assessment of their experience isn't always accurate, where they might be in a pose, they might be feeling fine in the pose, they might feel fine the day after doing that practice, and deterioration or like a degeneration of the joint or the area might not show up for several months later. And this, yeah. this, this, they, this comes across like a bit like a gotcha moment, like, oh, just because they don't know it then doesn't mean they're not doing bad damage now. So therefore, they really shouldn't be, as you just said, dumping into their joints. They shouldn't be doing this because, because this is a setup. Yeah, I call that playing the fear of God card. <laughs> and once people start learning about the realities of human variation and how some people can hyperextend their knee or elbow, and they're perfectly fine doing that. And then the, the teacher will kind of say, well, do what you want, it's your body, but in time, you're going to really destroy your elbow. They don't know that. That's pure speculation. I haven't seen any studies that back up those things. I've looked for them. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that says if you keep hyperextending your knee, you're going to damage the knee. There's nothing that says if you keep hyperextending your elbow in Vashistasana, you're going to damage the elbow. There's nothing in the medical literature about that. Now, absence of proof is not proof of absence. It doesn't mean you can't. But these people are just speculating. They have no source for making that claim other than perhaps this is the way they were taught. They believe their teacher and they've got it as a dogmatic belief system in their own mind. And that's just what they're sharing. So they're going to justify it or rationalize it in some way. But they don't know if that person is going to hurt themselves in six months or six years. Right. And it's a little bit like the logical equivalency of what you're saying, like not getting out of bed. You know, you yeah. get out, if you get out of bed and you have a good day, that doesn't mean that Three months from now, you could get out of bed and get hit by a truck. Yeah, or crossing the street. Crossing the street is dangerous, so you should never cross the street. And one day you cross the street and you got hit. Geez, my teacher was right. <laughs> I should never have crossed the street. Um, all right, good. Um, so, you know, the, the onus is on the student. The student has to pay attention. But if you look at any malady, there were warning signals. The body just doesn't suddenly fail on you. There was something going on somewhere along the line, but most people ignore it. We're not trained to pay attention to our body. We're trained to ignore it. The analogy is, you know that red light on your car dashboard that says engine? You hate seeing that red light, right? It comes on and flashes. It's really worrying. So what you do is you take some masking tape and put it over the light. <laughs> now I solved the problem. That's the way a lot of people treat our little sensations of pain. We ignore them. We mask them. And we don't pay attention to that warning signal. And then in six months, something bad goes wrong. We wonder, where did that come from? Well, it's been happening all along. You just weren't paying attention or you chose not to pay attention. And part of what you're describing now, too, gets at a very um, difficult tendency in human nature, I think, which is that humans easily confuse causation with correlation. 
or correl- no. they confuse correlation with causation. Sorry, I reversed yeah. that there. But um, and I know you've talked about this before, but it, it, what what are some of the ways that you think people do mix those up in in terms of experience of injury or or pain? Well, first of all, they look for the proximal cause, and that's a fancy term for what did I just do? Um, again, Professor McGill talks about this. He's a spine biomechanic and uh, a lecturer at the University of Waterloo. He runs a, a lab on what the spine can do. And he's often called as an expert witness in cases where somebody, say they went home at night and they picked up a sock from the floor and they put their back out. They couldn't work for six months. They file a worker compensation claim. The workers' compensation board says, we can't cover you. You hurt yourself at home. The proximal cause was picking up the sock. Well, that's like the last straw that broke the camel's back, ignoring all the other straw that was put there. In reality, this guy all day long for years has been picking a heavy box off a conveyor belt, turning and putting on a skid. And it's that constant repetition of stress through years and years that has weakened his spine so much. So one day he goes home and picks up the sock and throws it back out. So we like to blame the proximal cause, ignoring all the history of what's been happening. And this happens in the yoga world, too. You've heard the probably the urban myth of somebody who hurts herself in pigeon pose and then sues the studio because it was in your class and it's your studio. I did pigeon. And I hurt my hip. Well, she I, didn't see it the it, week before it, she'd ran a marathon. And before that, she was um, skiing down the hill and had a little tweak and all the other things that she did. She ignored. It was just the proximal cause. I was in this pose. So it must have been what caused the problem. Or, you know, they were type A Ashtangi, not to diss Ashtangis, but type A Ashtangi going into, a, you know, really gunning for it in, in these poses where the leg goes behind the head or something and potentially overstressing things there beyond the tissue's capacity and then right. leading to a weakness that then the final straw, as you're saying, in pigeon, well, in a yin class would be swan, right? Right, but, right. <laughs> so, Yeah. We do have this tendency to look for the most nearest thing in time and think that's what caused the problem. That's the last straw is the problem. So we do have this problem with correlation and causation are a little bit different in that there's an interesting study that showed people who take breaks at work a lot, like take a break every hour, actually have more heart attacks than people who don't take a break. And so you think that's a weird sort of correlation. But you have to look beyond that. The reason people took the break was to have a cigarette smoke. <laughs> well, the correlation wasn't the taking the break with the heart attacks. You had to look deeper to find, well, the cause of the heart attack was the cigarette smoking. Right. So correlations can show up in all sorts of different ways that are not the best evidence of scientific proof. Right. Yeah. And there's all sorts of, I mean, in, in yoga land, there's all sorts of funny ideas, I think, or, or kind of crazy ideas, not crazy, but maybe weird ideas around causation, like they come to a class and someone brought them a cup of coffee after, it's a nice gesture, or someone brought them a green drink to the class. And and then the story goes, I was supposed to come to this class to get this because the universe wanted me to have this experience or something. Synchronicity. Synchronicity, yeah. Um, There's said to be four levels of evidence in science in increasing veracity, if you will. The first is just an anecdote. Now, most scientists hate the anecdote because that's a one-off. And, and anecdotes can be used for almost anything. You can get a, a football player who says, you know, I took this pill and it really helped my hair grow. Well, that's an anecdote. Maybe it did help them, but that's not proof that taking this pill is going to help your hair grow. But there's a lot of anecdote that's used as scientific evidence. 
the value of the anecdote, you know, the anecdote is true. It's a piece of data. I'm not dismissing anecdotes. But what the value is, it shows a direction to investigate something. This anecdote happened. Well, that's interesting. Let's do more tests. So it guides your research, if you will. The next thing is hypothesis. I can figure out because this worked over here and this worked over here, maybe this would work here too. That's a hypothesis. And that too will help guide the direction of your research. It's not really good proof yet. If you just got some logic that says, well, A is equal to B and B is equal to C, I got the logic that says A should equal C. The third is correlation. And correlation also is pretty strongly used if you're doing enough of them to make sure it's not a one-off kind of anecdotal thing. But the, the gold standard in, in science for proof is the experiment. And all the other things kind of lead up to saying, well, let's take an experiment. If the hypothesis is right, it makes a forecast. We can check, we'll set up an experiment and see if the forecast comes out. And if it does, we now, in science, we say we have a strong model. We don't say it's truth. <laughs> we don't say it's real. It's a model, it's a map. And now the next test is, can somebody reproduce that and do it over and over again? So it's the experiment that's the gold standard in science. Now, some things you can't do these experiments on because there's just too many variables. Right. Try to simplify. Physics is easy because you can have very simple experiments. Biology is very difficult because there's so many variables and it's hard to control for each variable. So listen, you'll get the anecdote of somebody coming to a class and this happened to them and then they make this huge claim that, you know, yin yoga or yang yoga or pigeon is bad for you. Well, it was bad for that one person, but we don't know why. Right. Something happened and, and it, within the context of a load of other conditions that right. brought this about. I, I get the reverse, the reverse of this. Sometimes I'll get a student who comes up to me. She'll say, I've been doing your yin yoga class for a year now. And I started with huge back pains. It was almost crippling. And now I'm completely pain-free. Yin yoga works. And I say, well, it's great to hear. But in my mind, I'm thinking, was it the yin yoga that worked? Was it the asanas? Was it the mindfulness? Was it the breath? Was it getting out of a house? Was it meeting with other people? We don't know what worked. We know that it worked for her. That's the anecdote. But why it worked, I can't say yin yoga cured her back or that this pose cured her back. That would be a leap too far. Right. All we can say is that this is interesting. Maybe we should study it. Right. And so what you're speaking to is a kind of intellectual honesty and humility around what we don't know. Right. Um, one of the things I've appreciated about your writing over the years is your background in science and the sort of the acuity and sharpness that you bring to uh, staying on top of the science, uh, particularly around connective tissue, stretching, um, and, and, and then unpacking that science for people that are, that aren't scientifically trained. And w one of the questions I had just on more of a process level is how do you, in your own practice, go about managing all that work? <laughs> well, it, it doesn't feel like work for one thing. I mean, I've always been very curious, right, from being a little kid, you know, with my little chemistry set and microscope and, you know, I went through the sciences and university, I have a degree in science, and in my, my day job, I was hanging out with literally rocket scientists and engineers, because I was working in the high-tech space industry, and you know, I'd go to conferences and I'd keep up with it, so when I came into yoga, it was this, the same curiosity and drive, I wanted to learn more and more about this, and uh, again, going to conferences and talking to the experts in various areas and reaching out to them, 
writing a book has been a great way to satisfy that curiosity because it, it, it forced me when I write a statement and I have to pause and say, well, wait a minute, how do I know that's true? And so it may, sometimes it may take me two days to write one paragraph because I have to do so much research and footnoting to make sure what I just said actually is true mm-hmm. instead of me just parroting something I heard my teacher say or I heard Iyengar say. So it's just raw curiosity that drives me. And to say, it's, it's not work like that. It's just it's, I'm getting paid to follow my hobby. That's, that's, that's good. Um, and we all appreciate it. Um, in terms of the state of the, where the science is right now, where do you, what do you see as being sort of well-established in terms of confirming the theories we have around what yin yoga is doing to the body in terms of its benefit for connective tissue? Well, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of that fourth level of evidence, the experiment. And again, I have to point out that the absence of proof is not proof of absence. Just because we can't prove yin yoga works doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just means we can't show that level. There are a few experiments more of now that hopefully in a couple of years will show that yin yoga versus not will work, but it still won't show what about yin yoga worked. Was it the actual pose? Was it the attention that people are getting? Was it the social factor, the biological, psychological? So we still have to narrow that down. So all we can do is kind of go to more of the hypothesis and the correlation levels. We know, for instance, in the work of a woman named Helen Langevin, one of the rock stars in fascial research, that when she does yin yoga to a whole body, it helps to reduce the immune system response to inflammation and make inflammation better. And chronic inflammation is one of the biggest problems in either causing or making diseases worse, from heart disease to cancer to uh, autoimmune disorders. These are caused by chronic stress leading to chronic inflammation. And her studies have shown that when you stress the whole body for 10 minutes twice a day, it significantly reduces the inflammation markers. Now, unfortunately, her studies were done on rats. And so it's a leap of logic to say the same thing happens in a human. We haven't tested that with humans yet. But it's interesting to see all these pointers. And you can get down into a science called cellular signaling, where you can look at how mechanotransduction, which is a fancy term for when you stress the membrane of the cell and you hold that stress on there for a few minutes, it starts to turn on the cell. It starts to secrete chemical messengers or change the shape of the cell, or it can differentiate the cell if it's a stem cell into becoming different types of tissues. So we know at the microbiological level, stresses have these effect. But again, we haven't got the smoking gun that says this is what happens in yin yoga. So all we're doing is collecting a whole bunch of things that seem similar, and then you use a second level of proof, you hypothesize. Well, maybe these are the, the structures that are being affected in our yin practice. But we don't have the smoking gun that says yin yoga does this. We don't, have the, we don't even have that for regular yoga or for physiotherapy or physical therapy. We don't really have the exact proof that A caused B, which caused C. But we have some pretty strong correlations that's driving the research direction. So from that level of correlation and hypothesis, what would you like to see? If you could design a few studies, um, wh- how would you go? What would you want to see happen? Or what would you want to see uh, tested? Well, I'd love to see uh, Helen Langevin's work scaled up to people. <laughs> now, she studied acupuncture and how acupuncture works. And from that, we can uh, extrapolate that the same sort of stresses that we're doing to the fascia in an acupuncture needle that you stick in there and you twist, and the fibers and the collagen wrap around the needle, which causes a, a stress on the fibroblast. 
well, is that also happening in our yoga classes? Can we actually see these, these biological markers happening in somebody who's doing a twist for five minutes? Right. And, I think it's scaled up to humans. There was an interesting interview with her going around. I don't know if you even shared it, but um, she was saying there that with a needle grasp, with collagen yeah. winding around the needle in, the, in a rat, they could see that effect throughout the whole organism. You may have already just said that too, that you, they're able to see it on a global level. And in humans, yeah. they can see it sort of several centimeters away, but it's not clear to me whether that's just a, a limitation of the kind of technology we have to assess the impact. Yeah, and, and science is so siloed that people study their domain and right next to them is another domain they don't even make the correlations. Uh, so it'd be interesting to look at this from an energetic point of view because we have these ideas of uh, communication channels through the water phases of the, the fascia. And if you create a piezoelectric current through the turning of the acupuncture needle, will that current actually get transmitted much further away into the body? Right. Which may be an explanation of the whole meridian theory of the East. Right. There may be scientific underpinnings here, but we haven't done those experiments yet. It'd be fascinating to do those. Well, yeah, and as a as a referring to your more your science background um, and this piezoelectric effect, um, yeah. for people that aren't familiar with that, piezoelectricity is a very small amount of electrical electronic signal that's generated by crystals when they're deformed right when when right. there's a force pressed on crystals um, and then they're released that th that crystalline structure releases a little bit of electricity is correct that and a good example is the kids sneakers runners that light up when they walk those leds aren't being run by batteries we would the word crystal and that's technically correct but a metal is, is a crystal so in the soles of the shoes, there's a little strip of metal. You bend the metal, you create a current. Well, our own tissues, our collagen, is crystalline in nature. It's not like an amethyst crystal or rose quartz crystal. It just means a repeating pattern. So in the body, most of our tissues are crystalline. And if you stress those tissues, they create these little currents. Now, sometimes those currents can flow through the water in our fascia and reach to other areas. Well, that's my question. Um, and I've been trying to sift through the, the literature on this myself. Um, if you read someone like, let's see, James Oshman in Energy Medicine, yeah. or you read Daniel Keown in The Spark and the Machine, these guys seem pretty confident that that's exactly what is happening. That, yes. that, and then if you look at like the new book that has just come out, you've probably seen it, David Lazondak's book, Fascia, What Is It and Why It Matters. He mentions this bit about piezoelectricity. He says at this point, the research is still just speculative, or the, or yeah. the understanding is speculative. So... And I just, I'm just saying this because, because this is where, you know, yin yoga folks can, I think, make claims beyond where the research is. And then that can set them up to being attacked from others. Like, no, there's no, this is nonsense. We don't have proof of this yet, et cetera. Right. So we're at the second level of evidence. We have hypotheses. And they've got sound basis. There are sound hypotheses, but we haven't done the actual test. But again, the absence of proof is not proof of absence. So you can't say because we haven't done the test, therefore it doesn't work. Now, science is, as I said before, it's like a map. And let's suppose, like a Google map, you're looking for a Starbucks. And you're walking down the street, and there in front of you is a Starbucks. But you look at your map, and it's not on the map. And you look at the Starbucks, it's there. It's real, but it's not on the map. So you might think, well, that Starbucks isn't real. Because we still believe in the map, that if we see something that's not on the map, well, it obviously isn't real. No. In science, you have to change the map. You have to update the map to accommodate the anecdote. 
I have this experience all the time taking Lyft ride shares in Boston. I, I'm looking at my, my smartphone with the map of the car coming, and it says the, the car is 10 minutes away. But then there's this guy <laughs> on the sidewalk next to me honking. He's like, your Lyft's here. <laughs> but it, it's not supposed to be here yet. No, um, no that's great. Um, one question I did want to ask you is, in, you know, you've been looking at this topic for over a decade now. And in light of the research that you've seen coming out in the fascia world, has that changed how you've approached your own practice of yin yoga at all? Yeah, that's, that's definitely informed it. And my age has informed it as well. I mean, I do my practice today for, I'm 64. I do a practice that suits me at 64. It's not the same practice I did at 44. Of yin yoga, though. Of yin yoga. Yeah, even my yin yoga, like I used to do all yoga. I went to a phase where yoga was my physical practice. And then I started to realize yoga is good for some things, but it's not good for all things. So now I like to think of physical health as being comprised of three orthogonal axes, if you will. There's strength. And for strength building, resistance training, I like to swing kettlebells and do push-ups and handstands. There's endurance. And for endurance, I like to run sprints. I've never been a good marathon runner, but I love doing sprints. All my sports when I was younger was sprinting sports. And then for mobility, I do yin yoga. Now, mobility is flexibility with coordination, if you will. You know, flexibility is not the same as mobility. Flexibility is your range of motion. Mobility is your ease of motion. So for mobility, yin, for endurance, sprints, for strength, kettlebells, and maybe some power yoga type stuff. So my practice now has kind of been informed by the, the science in all three of these areas. And fascial research shows why yin yoga is working, but fascial uh, research is also showing a yang component of, of pilometrics and bouncing can actually be very good for a fascia because the fascia needs to be fairly elastic as well. So it's not just avoiding the shrink wrapping that happens with age. You want to get that natural elasticity back into your, your fascia that you used to have as a child. And so some of my young yoga practice is much more bouncy than it used to be. And that's coming from the fascia research. Right. Dr. or Professor Robert Schleip has been looking at that and showing that uh, under ultrasound, they can see that the collagen has a wave-like, I think any deep microscope can show this, but the collagen has a wave-like formation that right. literally has a spring-like quality to it, um, which I always try to explain is this is a yang quality in your yin tissue, yeah. yang, yang within yin, right? Yeah. Um, and and to, to get that in, as you're saying, you need to do bouncing type exercises to build that that uh, that quality in. But what's in what I wanted to ask you about too, because this I think gets into how yin teachers or yin practitioners may mischaracterize the practice and come and this comes back to the idea of binary separation or binary differentiation. Right. Where uh, like I'll see in some comment thread somewhere, uh, someone says, well, in yin yoga, we only stress the connective tissue. We don't stress the muscles. We don't influence the muscles and vice versa. And um, I certainly used to teach that way going back 10 years ago when I first yeah. came to it. You know, I saw a study that said 41% of your range of motion is limited by the muscles and its fascia. Yeah. You know, 47% at the joint tissue. So yin yoga is going to work. The dense connective tissue is the joint. Yang yoga is going to influence the, the muscle and its fascia. But based on this um, more recent research, I'm, I'm starting to, to adjust how I'm communicating that, suggesting that yin yoga trains your tissues in this particular kind of way, 
which is basically reducing contracture and, and applying a, a, a linear stress to the tissue when you're in a pose. And yang yoga is going to train, or yang exercise, I should say, is going to train your tissue in different ways where it uh, emphasizes transverse stresses across the muscle. But also, I think, with the bouncing, is going to load the joint tissue with that el property of elastic recoil. Right. Yeah, you're right. Yin yoga, the stresses we apply in yin yoga practice is going to affect all the tissues. And that doesn't mean it's going to affect them positively or negatively. It just means the stress will be felt throughout the whole body. Um, we're interconnected. Uh, in science, we use this thing called reductionism. We like to break things into parts. It's easy to understand a car if you break it into its component parts. But the reality is we're not parts. Our bones are not separate from our joint capsules, which are not separate from our ligaments, which are not separate from our muscles. The analogy I use is a rainbow. If you look at a rainbow, you can see the color red. And you can definitely see orange, you can see yellow and green and so on. But you can't tell me where red ends and orange begins. See, we're not made of Lego bricks. And the rainbow isn't Lego bricks. You can approximate it. You can have a red brick and a yellow brick and an orange brick. But one becomes the other. And so our connective tissue, our fascia, is it's like, or maybe not a good analogy for yoga teachers, but before you're a yogi, you may have gotten an eight-pack of hot dog wieners. Your mother may have got those. And there's an outside wrapper around the whole thing. And that could be like the fascia around the muscle, mm -hmm. the, the epimysium. But when you open it up, there inside each hot dog may have its own wrapper, which is the paramysium. And then inside that, you've got muscle cells, which have their own wrapper, the endomysium. And inside the cell, there's fascia actually wrapping up the sarcomeres. All these little plastic bags are fascia that are connected to each other. So your ligament becomes the fascia of the muscle, which goes into the muscle, becomes a cell of the muscle. So all these things are continuous, like the rainbow. So you can't say that I'm not affecting my adductor muscles when I'm doing straddle pose. You are. Right. And that may be healthy for those fascial tissues within the muscle. And that's such a, I mean, a very common response I get in a class or a workshop where someone says, um, I don't think I'm doing this right because I feel it in my quadricep, or I feel right. it in my, the, my hamstring. I said, no, no, that, that's where you're affecting it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's great. All that can be You're just affecting those tissues in a yin-like way. Later you want to affect them in a yang-like way. That's all good. Okay, I'll stop there for now. And in the next episode of Everyday Sublime, I'll bring you the fourth and final installment of the interview series with yin master Bernie Clark. In that episode, Bernie and I look at how there's really been a paradigm shift in thinking about how uh, ligaments function in the body as well as looking at common misconceptions about yin yoga, both in the yoga world at large and also within the yin yoga community. We'll talk about the importance of understanding the concept of creep, as well as looking at how to think about propping in yin yoga and also making adjustments in yin yoga. There's also an occasion or two in this final segment where I go full Boston on Bernie, but you'll have to wait for that when you hear it. As always, I look forward to sharing that episode with you with insights from my practice to yours. If you'd like more on Bernie Clark, please visit his website, yinyoga.com, as well as look into two of his wonderful books, The Complete Guide to Yin Yoga, and the second book being Your Body, Your Yoga. 
If you'd like to train or practice with me, you can look up my offerings at yinyogaschool.com. That's yinyogaschool.com. And for now, I wish you the best and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thank you.